great mother earth her promise in peril this is an environmental show that's going to look at various aspects of our environmental condition air quality water quality water supply we need to understand in order to cohabitate in global environment the concerns we have here in modesto are varied we are a farming and agricultural community at large we need to look at the effects that the global temperatures are having on our soil the dust storms that have been increasing over the years the fertilizer that runs into our water supplies and life in an agricultural community in addition to stats and figures that we collect and broadcast for you we're also going to bring to you locations where you can do further research and how we can use the information about our environment to live better healthier lives what is happening to the surface of the planet earth and to california's central valley what's happening is this the weather or is this the climate did you ever wonder if it's just a bad week in the stanislaw valley or if there's a deeper disruption of everyone's good health? Is this California business as usual? Or is this the fight over human and non-human rights? What are the honest, hardcore facts about reckless human behavior that cause the peril that humans make for each other? And what can we do to take better care of each other? Where do we find the promise for a better world? Stay tuned to this broadcast to find out more about the peril and the promise. I am Adley. And I am Pegasus. We are curators of factual recordings so that you can learn and navigate for yourself this terrain of the perils and the promises right here on kcbpradio.org, sponsored by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. On today's show, we've got four different topics we're going to touch on, and we'll also talk about some of these uh, topics on future shows. But for today's show, we're going to be looking at Site 300, which is uh, the testing site for the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And we'll also be talking about the effect of the United States federal budget upon our environment as we think about the peril and the promise. Then, of course, we're going to look at fracking, which has been a, a sort of a forgotten peril as of late with the current peril to our democracy. And on the note of promise and all the goodness that can happen in the future, we'll hear from Tom Spiritbringer regarding the universe story and the calendar that can help teach us more about the universe story. The National Nuclear Security Administration wants to perform larger explosive tests to support nuclear arms maintenance and counterterrorism research at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, according to a November 3rd regulatory filing. The 65-year-old nuclear weapons research facility in Livermore, California, wants to increase the size of the non-nuclear explosive tests it is allowed to perform to a maximum of 1,000 pounds a day and 7,500 pounds a year from the current maximum of 100 pounds a day and 1,000 pounds a year, according to a draft environmental assessment released by the NNSA. The test, performed some 15 miles southwest of the lab near the town of Tracy, California, support 
research vital to stockpile stewardship, counterterrorism, and counterproliferation program missions. Thank you for that information, Ed Light. And I'm wondering about how this pertains to the area where we live, like our watershed. Well, I met a woman at uh, the awards dinner for MID. What's MID? Modesto Irrigation District. It really, that has nothing to do with the Site 300, just where I met the lady. And her father worked at Site 300 for 30 years. And uh, he died, I believe, at 58 of cancer. And there are a lot of workers that had cancer and died. The issue of atomic radiation has been in the, the forefront of activism for years. When we were doing research on nuclear energy, atomic weaponry, there was very little known about the period of time it takes for somebody to actually be diagnosed with a condition that can be tied directly back to radiation is a long period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. So you've got deaths of sailors and like five or six ships were sunk because of the Bikini Island test that they were doing back in, you know, the 50s, right? And so this kind of knowledge wasn't really applied to research at facilities like the Lawrence Livermore Lab until the 80s, the late 70s or 80s. So as you're saying, Livermore Lab uh, is in control of Site 300, and there's been a lot of data collected, but they took decades before they applied it to trying to clean up their own act as they continue their works with um, uh, weapons testing and other things that can contaminate our environment. So there's a whole lot of folks that have been contaminated. And when you look at Site 300 today, we don't have access to the information of health and uh, contamination related to employees. The safety equipment is there, right? They've got their badges, they take precautions because we've got a much better idea how dangerous it is. But the fact of the matter is we have the residue and residual contamination from testing since 1954 all the way to today, really, right? And with this application to make bigger blasts, if the firing table at Site 300 is in use, they will not be doing any cleanup of the site. So if you take a thousand pounds of explosives, right, and blow them off, all that stuff that's laying on the ground in the soil is gonna get displaced, put into the air, and distributed whichever way the wind blows. So we may have contamination and we may not be able to accurately tie it to these explosions, even if we did implement technology that's available today. Are there any, um, like, do you know anything, numbers about the population of people living there and is it growing or diminishing? Well, the city of Tracy is growing and it's growing uh, considerably, very fast lately. One of the biggest developments 
right now is what they call Tracy Hills. And it's a, a fairly upscale development. Basically, the there's a lot of people moving from the Bay Area to Tracy. And uh, the developers are trying to build the housing to support that growth. The issues of Site 300 are not published. So very few people are aware of this situation. And that's one of the things Tri-Valley Cares is trying to do is to get people informed about these issues. The, um, and, and there is no expectation that the growth in population of Tracy is going to slow down anytime soon. Yeah. So in those areas, aren't there a lot of like uh, waterways that lead towards Stockton? Aren't there uh, canals for water that are open air, you know? So when blasts go off, is any of the stuff going to land in the canals that we drink from? Well, the most of the water that Site 300 gets is well water. And they drill down into the aquifer that runs from Red Bluff, California, down to Bakersfield. It's the Central Valley Aquifer, yeah. right? And uh, there's alluvial cavities, alluvial cavities, and they're porous, right? So you get uh, well water from a cavity, and you can drain that, and then water will seep from adjacent ones. Site 300, part of the cleanup is the water. So they pump water out of the well, they wash and treat the contaminated water, and then re-inject it back into the well. After it's been tested for that it's allegedly got fewer contaminants before they re-inject it. That's the idea. Also, there is some contaminants that have been detected that are going into the water that the city of Tracy uses for their residential use. Mm -hmm. It's trace. It is also within the acceptable limits set by the government. And where did you find this information in your whole lifetime or just recently? Recently, I was just doing some research. You know, I was interested in, in the water situation in California in general. And there's some pretty good information that you can get online. And so uh, some nice scientific studies and uh, there's a California study that, you know, showed me some maps and they're not necessarily interconnected. There are uh, aquifers underneath the Bay Area and there is some a lot of aquifers that are being fed by the Stockton Delta. And then there's the San Joaquin aquifer that travels pretty much the entirety of the Central Valley. It is all interconnected, but it's it's not free flowing. Uh -huh. So let's get some of these maps on our website too. So at the end of the show, people can um, go online and see more, uh, visualize uh, some of the stuff that you've been talking about, Adley. And we're going to talk more about this issue of Site 300 and the issue of water in our state and in our region on future editions of Peril and Promise. Well, it's one thing for sure is it's going to be very hard to get information that is accurate as to what actually is going on at Site 300 because it is under the auspices of the Department of Energy and the EPA. Their website just in the last uh, six months has been trimmed down dramatically. Thank you, Adley, for this information about uh, the water in the state, the water locally, and about Site 300, and the peril that is um, 
facing us regarding what explosions might continue and might grow at Site 300. Thank you also for bringing up the point about information. We will um, use our website at kcbpradio.org to put any other links to where people can find uh, more information about the kinds of things that we're talking about on this radio show, The Peril and the Promise. You've been listening to The Peril and the Promise. That first segment was about Site 300. We'll revisit that issue periodically. And we've got three more segments on this half-hour show, The Peril and the Promise, here on kcbpradio.org. The next segment is about the United States federal budget. William Hartung has reported in the spring of 2018 regarding the um, the budget for the United States government and what that means uh, for the environment. So as William Hartung puts it, Boeing, Raytheon, and Lockheed Martin uh, earned a lot of money from, it looks like tens of billions of dollars from the Pentagon contracts they got. That was in 2017, and they're looking for an additional $54 billion on top of the regular bloated uh, military budget uh, for fiscal year 2018. The extra $54 billion on top of the already um, $85 billion, this extra $54 billion equals the entire military budgets for our friends in Germany, France, and the United Kingdom, and Japan. William Hartung also reports that um, this could be a little bit of money for jobs. Um, the uh, administration in Washington, D.C. was hoping for a hundred, no, I'm sorry, one trillion dollars for infrastructure uh, in the USA, but that might not materialize because they're busy giving six to seven trillion over the next decade for the Pentagon. And based on what we know from Pentagon expenditures in 2016, a couple years ago, up to half of these dollars go directly into the coffers of the defense contractors. So the jobs program is really for Boeing, Raytheon, and Lockheed Martin. Um, rather than uh, construction workers and infrastructure. Uh, so the troops and basic military tasks in the U.S. military do not get all these extra dollars. It's for high-tech warfare through Boeing, Raytheon, and Lockheed Martin. Uh, I'm looking at William Hartung's report on the military expenditures and the budgetary requests and how that affects uh, our society and pollution on the earth. William Hartung continues uh, his report uh, this spring 2018, saying, quote, Beyond the hot wars that have involved U.S. troops and airstrikes in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen, there are scores of other places where this country's special operations forces are on the ground 
training local militaries, and in many cases accompanying them on missions that could turn deadly, as happened to the four Green Berets operating in Niger in October 2017, unquote. Uh, William Hartung continues that uh, the U.S. activities, uh, military activities in Africa, there's already 6,000 U.S. troops um, to train and equip uh, African soldiers. So the exporting of military uh, power uh, continues. Trillions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives later, the primary lesson from the perpetual wars and profligate weapons spending of this century should be that throwing more money at the Pentagon isn't making us any safer, unquote. William Hartung is the director of the Armed Security Project at the Center for International Policy. He's the author of Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, back in 2011. An earlier book that he co-edited was Lessons from Iraq, Avoiding the Next War. That was in 2008. This is KCBP Radio bringing you our environmental show, The Promise and Peril of Great Mother Earth. I am Adlai Fredrickson. And I am Pegasus. And we're halfway through the first installment of this radio show. We're about to hear from Adlai about fracking, and after that we'll hear from Tom Spiritbringer about the Universe Story Calendar. Fracking is a somewhat complicated topic as it has significant socio-economic influences as well as potentially devastating impact on the environment. So in order to present this information in a digestible manner, we have to break up this segment into several episodes. In this episode, we will talk about some history and basic facts about hydrocarbon fuels with a focus on natural gas. Natural gas is mostly methane, but also contains butane, hexane, propane, helium, hydrogen sulfide, and carbon dioxide, and also other extremely toxic cancer-causing gases, including xylene and benzene. This variable mix of gases are referred to as BTEX, or BTEX. Over millions of years, layers of buried plants, sea animals, rocks, mud, and sand were subjected to extreme heat and pressure. The original energy taken in by these plants from the sun was transformed and stored deep underground in the form of oil, coal, and natural gas. That is to say, the sun's energy was stored in the strength of molecular bonds between hydrogens and carbons that make up those hydrocarbon fuels. Fracking is a way of releasing trapped gases from decaying biomass below the surface of the earth that has been trapped and solidified in rock, like shale. Amongst the earliest records of natural gas seepage was in Mount Parnassus in ancient Greece as far back as 700 BC. The site was thought to be magical, as apparently spontaneous flames shot from the ground. Without the benefit of scientific knowledge of chemistry, it is understandable that such an occurrence would be a sign from God. Pythia, the priestess, would breathe in the gas to produce a trance-like state, then consulted on important matters of state and God. 
It was a site of pilgrimage for several centuries. During this time, there were several priestesses, all named Pythia, that were sought out by many important citizens as a way to get divine, divine guidance. As records of that time are limited, it is possible to know for sure, but it is believed that few, if any, Pythia priestesses lived past the age of 40. The Chinese were the first to recognize the energy-giving properties of these gases and implemented the first known commercial use of natural gas, boiling salt water, to extract salt as early as 400 BC. Anyone who has had to carry water can understand what, why they thought it would be easier to bring gas to the water than the other way around. So the Chinese devised a pipeline using bamboo to bring the gas from the pockets of gas beneath the subsurface of the earth to the site of salt water to be boiled. In search of more gas, they also devised a drilling operation by building a bamboo scaffold and dropping a chiseling tool to break the rock and drill some 3,000 feet below the surface. Back in the United States several centuries later, in 1825, William Aaron Hart hand-dug a 30-foot well in western New York and using hollowed-out logs delivered natural gas to Fredonia, New York to provide gas lighting to the town. As this was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, many people were looking for oil and gas. It was well known that oil deposits were often found near pockets of natural gas. The son-in-law of William Hart, Preston Barmore, was drilling for oil in the same area of western New York and ran into solid rock. It was hard going drilling through the rock that Preston believed was sitting on top of a rich oil reserve. When he was down 120 feet, he got frustrated and dropped dynamite down the shaft, hoping for a gusher of oil but instead released more gas. He subsequently established the Fredonia National Natural Gas Company in 1857. One might argue that this gave birth to modern fracking. The technology of fracking has advanced in terms of gas access and capture, but the process of drilling and exploding the rock is basically the same. The process now involves drilling down, then across a shale deposit, thereby increasing the area of the extraction well. This well is then pressurized at some 9 to 10,000 pounds per square inch with some secret mix of chemicals and many thousands of gallons of water. The chemicals in this pressurized well is then ignited, thereby blowing up the shale deposit and releasing the gas and loosely adhering to the chemical mix. The chemical mix is then extracted and the gas is separated from the mix and the wastewater is put into a holding pit and the gas is put into a storage facility, usually a tanker truck, to be taken to refineries for further processing or liquefied to allow more efficient long-range transport. In the process of separation, methane is released into the atmosphere. And it is important to note that methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. In addition to the separation process, there is the wastewater to consider. How it's stored is very important, and oftentimes it is not done satisfactorily. The idea of blowing up large areas of the subsurface seems like it could have some negative environmental impacts. 
among those are increased seismic activities in nor normally dormant areas in places like Oklahoma. Putting toxic water in open pits or re-injecting it into the underground wells has affected groundwater, as there are many reports of people lighting well water right at the tap. Thank you, Adlai, for uh, that first preview of this huge issue of fracking um, here on The Peril and the Promise. Um, we're going to go more into this issue at, on the next uh, episode of The Peril and the Promise. What part of fracking are you going to talk about or this industry you're going to talk about next? Well, I want to talk about some of the monopolies of the energy industries as a whole and how that they've shaped our socioeconomic structures. Thank you, Adlai. That's super important for our listeners to know how to take action and change the status quo. Uh, right now, we're going to hear from Thomas Spiritbringer about the universe story calendar. The past calendar, the Gregorian calendar, which was a worldwide calendar used by all, pretty much all nations in the world for business purposes. Now we know through study and research that the Gregorian calendar is out of date. The Gregorian calendar started 435 years ago? Yep, in and 1582 in and, the Common Era. And you said as it's been used mostly for business purposes. And mm -hmm. um, I was surprised I'd forgotten that China started using it when? In 1949, they ado adopted it. Less than 100 years ago. Yeah, less than 100 years ago. And the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church never did accept it. They're still using the Julian calendar of 46 BCE from uh -huh. Julius Caesar. Uh -huh. So it, some, some countries are ready to adopt new calendars, others aren't. And that's why we need to put it out today because we need this um, new way of seeing how the human family is united now instead of talking about this Gregorian calendar which celebrated that um, our universe is only as, as big as going out to Saturn through Saturn Day or Saturday. But now we know we go all the way back 13.8 billion years to Universe Day. So today is the first Universe Day of the new calendar year called the Universe Story Calendar. So we are recording this interview on a day that can either be called Thursday or Universe Day. Correct. And it's yep. a new calendar, yep. and it can wonderfully um, replace the Gregorian calendar. It can, right? Yes. As, as the title says, it's the essential transcending, including, and updating of the Gregorian calendar for humanity's present generations and future generations. So it includes it in some way. Yes. We're, I'm keeping, in my research, I realize that other people that tried to um, create world calendars, they tried to change too much, mm -hmm. especially religious holidays. And people don't like their religious holidays either changed or discarded. So the new calendar so continues new, to include that. Right. So we include that. We include the accuracy of, and the, um, the number of the days of the week will stay the same, seven. Number of days in the months of every month will stay the same, like you know, January, 31 days. But in this new calendar that might replace the Gregorian calendar, January is now called Flaring Forth. August is human emergence, when humans came on the Earth. And then former October now is classical civilizations, where people moved into the city. There's 12 new words for the months, and there's six new words for the days of the week. Because our consciousness has been formed that Tuesday is 
the day of Mars, the god of war. Mm-hmm. Do we want to keep celebrating that, a god of war? No. Or do we want to celebrate Earth Day? Yeah. Every week. Sure. Not just once, not just once a year. Music on The Peril and the Promise on the Earth is by Alzara Getz and Dorothy's Melting. <laughs>